Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nikhil Goyle about his book, Schools on Trial, How Freedom and Creativity Can Fix Our Educational Malpractice. Nikhil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if we could begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I am 20 years old. Uh, I graduated from Syosset High School on Long Island in in uh, January 2013, uh, and since then I've uh, I've been a journalist uh, and an education researcher, uh, writing about progressive, uh, democratic, and innovative schools and communities around around the country, uh, and also exploring the issues around how children learn, history of public education, uh, and some of the recent uh, education policies that have been put forth by the Obama administration. So of all the things you could have done after high school, um, what made you interested in, in researching education and writing about that topic? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been always somebody who's was frustrated in school. I did not find school to be a very, a very interesting and enjoyable experience. I found it to be quite alienating because what I was most interested in learning was not being covered in the curriculum. Teachers didn't really seem to be very interested in uh, exposing me to topics and subjects that I was most passionate about. Uh, namely uh, politics and social sciences um, and things that were going on in the real world. Uh, a lot of those things weren't happening uh, at school. Um, and I, I just started to do research, ask questions about why was school, why was school like this? Why, why did the education have to operate this way? Uh, and just those kind of beginning questions uh, led me to do research on education system, uh, reach out to policymakers and education thinkers and, and parents and students and, and try to get a better idea of how the system could be changed for the better. Uh, and so I went around the country to schools and communities that I would argue are reimagining and transforming the visions of, uh, of education um, and, and moving away from the kind of traditional uh, educational model uh, of testing and grades and and standardized testing and, and lectures uh, to more so an experiential, hands-on, project-based, and uh, much more freer and creative uh, approach to education. So uh, tell us a little bit more about how you came to write Schools on Trial. I mean, I've been write, working on this book for the past uh, couple of years, and I, I, I mean, I, I, what I wanted to do primarily was uh, show the public that there are amazing models and an effective models of schooling uh, around around the country that actually have been in existence for many many years. Some of them, um, and so I mean the process was quite quite interesting. I, I did a lot of traveling, I did a lot of research, and I did interviews with with students and parents and educators and uh, and policymakers. Um, and yeah, I, I mean my I mean the, I I think the two primary goals of the book are as following. One is to kind of expose the the, the major systemic flaws with the education system. Uh, and then second, to offer a much more inspiring and, and progressive blueprint for how we can change schools. And so uh, kind of do- those two things. I think the latter is not often discussed in books about education as much so as the former. Um, so I really wanted to offer a balance of the two. So um, early on in the book, you describe a day um, from your own high school experience at Syosset High School in New York. Right. You, you cite countless examples of small ways that, that you were frustrated by that experience. So there are short breaks between classes. You're interested in nonfiction, but you're not given opportunities to do that. The quizzes are no good. The lab experiments are scripted. Um, right. But still, the, the book isn't addressing each of these specific grievances. Instead, uh, it's about making more radical changes to, um, to our education system. So you're talking about students choosing their own curriculums, uh, governing the school's um, along with adults, and also right. interacting with adults from a much earlier age. So why are these kind of changes, these sweeping changes, so necessary? Well, I think they're necessary. I mean, so 
to kind of lay out the problem, I think, and then, then I could kind of, within that con- context, I could kind of explain why I think it's so important for these changes to come about. Uh, I mean, if you look at the American education system, we have uh, massive, I mean, you have massive numbers of, of disengagement, student disengagement in schools. Children are incredibly disengaged in their classrooms. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of research, a Gallup poll, uh, looked at this issue and they found that as a student goes through more years of, trish- of formal schooling, uh, the levels of student engagement decrease over time. It's a, it's a complete downward spiral over those uh, years in school. Uh, there's the fact that kids find school to be incredibly boring and alienating. There's massive, uh, massive research on the bullying ec- epidemic in schools. There's uh, a lot of research to show that children's curiosity and creativity decline dramatically as they go through more years of schooling. Um, and then also the fact that I think that kids are, are, are just not learning very well in school. They're, they're finding the experience that they're actually, they go through all these hundreds of, I mean, this hundreds of thousands, uh, I mean, thousands of hours of school uh, over their, over their careers. Um, yet many kids do not leave school with basic proficiency in, in reading math, uh, even after spending all that time dedicated to those subjects. Um, and, and also I think there's other, the other, uh, problems, which also, uh, which look at the issues of the fact that kids really have very few freedoms and rights in school. They're, they're really treated more so as people who need to be controlled rather than empowered. Um, so I think there are major, major problems with the way we look at schools. Uh, and so I think the reason why we need to change them is because we're losing it. We're losing generations of kids and losing their, uh, in terms of their curiosity, their imagination, their self-direction that could be actually be used for really useful and important purposes in our society. Um, and I think on top of that, there are, there is a need, I think, and a craving of, in the public for a different type of education, an education that is, uh, much more in line with students' interests and passions rather than the authority figure or the person who's kind of dictating that at a, at a governmental level. Um, and that's often a view that's shared by many teachers as well. Um, I found that teachers are increasingly so very resistant to many of um, the recent education reforms, uh, maybe standardized testing or pay for performance or kind of the bashing of, of teachers' unions. So I think there are there is, there is uh, many people, many many stakeholders, not just students and, and, and parents who are slowly realizing that the system absolutely needs to be uh, transformed. And I think your critique in the book is so powerful because it's grounded in your own experiences in school. And in fact, you actually name where you go to high school and when you attended. And so you're not right. like listing particular stakeholders like school board members or administrators or teachers, but it's not difficult for anyone who would be interested in, in finding who, who these individuals are, who are sort of implicated from your negative experience. Why did you decide to share those specifics rather than referring to your former high school by some certain characteristics right. or using a pseudonym? Right. Yeah. And that's actually, I mean, it's a common, I've noticed that it's a common, uh, technique by, uh, academics. I mean, they, what they do is that they, uh, don't identify the, the population necessarily or the place uh, in detail what they're studying, they, 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 they want to add to more generalizable knowledge. I mean, a lot of sociologists talk about they, they, they don't want to necessarily say, I, 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 I'm referring to this place or I'm trying to indict this system. It's more so this is a, 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 a problem that's much larger than this one individual case. But I think as a journalist and not only as a researcher, I think as a journalist primarily, I think it's an obligation for me to lay out and expose and, and show uh, and name specifically w- the the problems and the and the things I saw, um, and I think it's it's a more powerful uh, it has a more powerful effect on readers if you if you do that um, because I think they, it adds a level of authenticity that uh, that may not be there if you just kind of just say oh this is happening at this school and, and we don't give the actual name uh, and the other thing is that I don't think I mean I think it's important for journalists and writers to hold people in power and and hold uh, officials accountable. And so I think it's, it, there is that level of, uh, of, of, of making sure there's accountability there. Uh, and I think that can be, that was kind of also my intention to make sure that we hold these people, hold people's feet to the fire, uh, in terms of the educational decisions and policies they, uh, enact. And now have you heard from anyone from the school since you started writing about education? Um, I mean, nothing formally, but, 
Um, I'm sure they're not exactly very pleased um, with with uh, many of the what I'm saying. But I, I'm, I'm, there are there have been teachers in the past who've expressed uh, sympathetic views and, and and agreements with what I'm saying. So uh, I, I think there are um, there are people in not only this is school I went to, but in, in many other systems who would share similar perspectives on, on schooling. Uh, and I find, I mean, there, there are num- the problem is there are very few of them, I would say, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, but, uh, I do think that there are many really amazing educators who realize the problems with the system, but again, they're, t- they're, they're hamstrung by the fact that they have very little voice or power within how the education system is shaped. Um, so that's, 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 like, that's why I think, uh, we need to have a discussion and have a debate in this country about how we can bring more power and more influence and in terms of the decision-making process to educators and students and, and their communities, as opposed to politicians and, and corporations. Mm-hmm. So then who would you say is your target audience for the book? Well, I mean, I, I so I think there are a couple of different people I'd, I'd be interested in, in having this book reach. Obviously I'd love to get reach of people in, in the education system. And I mean, people in who are involved in, in schools and in educators and students and, and parents. I mean, I, I think there's anybody who's really interested in, in the topic of education. Uh, I think they will have something to glean from, from the book itself. I mean, and, and the other thing, my other purpose of the uh, purpose is to challenge people is to, I mean, I, I, I specifically say at the end of the introductions that I'm, I don't expect most people to agree with every single point I make. I just want them to kind of think and question and rethink some of their assumptions and, and beliefs about education and schooling, uh, and hopefully that will lead to uh, them beginning to think about these issues more critically. And so I think it, it, there is a lot of uh, – hopefully I think this will lead to more debate and discussion, uh, at least in the education uh, community. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Um, in, in the same way you were specific about your own experiences, you're very careful to tell your audience um, who has influenced your thinking. And so you, you list nine individuals right. in particular. Among them are John Holt, uh, Jonathan Kozal, Maria Montessori, A.S. Neal, um, and, and you go on. I was wondering if you could tell our audience uh, a little bit about who these individuals are and, and how you see their ideas as being connected. Yeah, I mean, so I those individuals, I mean, they the, one, the ones you've you've named, uh, they've had an extraordinary impact on my educational thinking and and philosophy. Um, and and one of the, I mean, one of the common criticisms that, uh, people will say is, oh, this is some, this is a, um, uh, these, these people are, are, are long dead. They're, they're not relevant. I mean, how could you possibly be citing or being influenced by these people? But in reality, if you actually read some of these, some of their books, for example, maybe John Holt or Kozel's or, or Coles, um, Coles, I mean, many of these people are not, not dead, but when they were, when they were very influential in the sixties and seventies, uh, they, I mean, many of the kind of critiques they had of schooling are incredibly relevant to today. Like I, you could, you could almost read those, what they're saying and and it would be very transferable to 21st century society. Um, so I mean, so, uh, I think they have extraordinary relevance to, to, the way we look at problems in education today. Um, so yeah, I, I think we, uh, those, those writers, many of them did come about in the 1960s and seventies and they were very influential, uh, during something called the free school movement, uh, especially Kozel, Holt and, and got and, and Goodman, uh, and, and Cole. And, and, and so I think there is this, um, there is this kind of, uh, uh, revival of some of these ideas. And I hope to bring that about through, through my writing, uh, and to show people that these ideas are not, they're not crazy. I mean, they were hashed out and they were talked about very widely in just a, about 50 years ago. So, um, hopefully I think they w- this will lead to some kind of, uh, uh, a greater interest in those, in those writers. What do you think happened? Um, so, and so I'm familiar with some of these authors myself and, um, their arguments were very much, um, part of the mainstream in the sixties and seventies. And, um, I don't hear other people uh, talking about these individuals or their ideas anymore. And, and so why do you think that might be? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because uh, it's one that I've been thinking about quite recently. Um, I mean, over the past couple of years. And so I, 
I think so. If you look at the history of the free school movement in in the 1960s, it, it was largely I would say the peak of the free school movement, as many historians would say, was around 1968 to 1972. Um, so it, it coincided with the massive student protests uh, and acts of civil disobedience against the war, Vietnam War. Um, and around this time, you I mean you had these you had many many books that by these writers that have, that we mentioned um, come out uh, and they were they, they were extremely influential I mean one of the major writers who was a s Neal who wrote the book Summer Hill in 1960 and that's sold millions of copies like hundreds and hundreds of of college classes adopted that that book in their syllabi um, so it, it was it was very very influential um, and so I think what happened was a few things one uh, after the Viet- I mean the Vietnam War the, uh, once that once that war ended, it crushed a lot of the, and it, it made a lot of the protests and activism and, and mobilization that was very prominent over the past de- decade uh, decrease dramatically. Uh, there wasn't this kind of one target that people could latch onto uh, to cr- criticize. And so, um, and education was very similar in that way, in that uh, one of the critiques that people made was the education system is not only just producing people who are docile consumers. They're producing people who are going to be fitting into and functioning in the war machine. Um, so once that machine was obliterated, or at least uh, uh, it had lost its power over time, uh, that that had a, that I think that had an effect. But I think the other part to this was that the free school movement uh, did not have uh, as many resources uh, that that were necessary to con- help it continue after the peak of 1968 to 1972. Um, and, but yeah, I think today you're seeing a revival in many of these ideas because of the fact that public education has been basically gutted by corporate education reforms. Um, and there's an interest in seeing a different education system that moves away from these, these various reforms. So you don't think it's just that um, most people want to return to a public school system, you know, before No Child Left Behind, um, without so many uh, standardized tests. But because of these changes, uh, people are now more open to a completely different model in a way they may not have been uh, ten or fifteen years ago. Right, right. I, it's it's um, it's that old saying like it's it's, it's got to get a lot worse until it gets better. Um, I mean, I think because the system has gone so much worse. Um, I mean, it, I'm not saying it was. Uh, and, and a lot of people uh, romanticize it before them, but I'm just saying it has gone quite bad uh, in, in the past decade uh, in terms of school closures, the, the, the decline of teachers' unions, um, the, the fact that teacher pay and, and, and morale has plummeted. Uh, I mean, those things are, I mean, terrible, terrible realities. Um, and so I, I think they're at, at, in that kind of landscape, there is uh, a, a mobilization and renewed interest in these alternative educational models, um, which is, I, I think it's just quite interesting to see that uh, because, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very amazed that there, that people are picking up Neil and, and Holt and, and Kozel and, and Cole that I've noticed particularly more so in recent years uh, that I think have not, have not, has not been the case uh, between 1980 to 2000. So it, it, it did take the system to get a lot, to, to exacerbate in, uh, to exacerbate, uh, for people to begin to think, oh, oh, this system needs to actually be completely transformed. I don't think we're completely, we're fully there yet, but, uh, I do think that people are beginning to, uh, think deeply about some of these issues and writers and ideas. Um, so you, you've talked a little bit about the free school movement. I was wondering if you can, uh, share some of the key attributes of free schools and, and what makes them different from both traditional schools and other progressive schools? Yeah, sure. Um, so to give a little context, the free school movement, as I mentioned, it was very prominent in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, and the free school movement was, uh, uh, the people who were behind it were advocating for a completely revolutionized view of education. So education that would not be to, uh, to uh, not be to produce people who were docile, compliant, workers, um, but rather free thinking, curious, creative, imaginative, and self-directed human beings. Uh, that this is a very, very different, uh, view of, of what education systems should produce. 
Uh, and actually, I would argue it goes against the kind of fundamental tenets of capitalism and the overall economic system. Um, so they were, they were radical thinkers. They were, they were really bold, progressive thinkers. Um, and they set up hundreds of these free schools around the country, basically places where there were no grades, there were no tests, there was democratic structures in place so students and teachers uh, could vote and be, have ownership over the learning process. Um, and there was self-directed learning, project-based learning, uh, the fact that uh, the community should not be divor- divorced from the classroom. They should be deeply ingrained and connected with one another. Um, so free schools, they, there were hundreds of these in, the, in that time period of the 60s and 70s. Uh, they did decrease the number quite a bit. Um, but today, I would say there, there are a couple hundred of them still in existence around the country. And even I think the number is growing, uh, even though they may not necessarily be called free schools. Um, and the, uh, one of the schools I talk about in the book is the Brooklyn Free School. Uh, and the Brooklyn Free School was started, I think, in the early 2000s, I think 2004. Um, and it, it was the first free school to open in the city in, in I think, over three decades. So this was a, a, a new development. Um, and the free schools, they, I think the, the model hasn't changed dramatically since the 60s and 70s. I mean, they're very much so based on the principles of, of trust and freedom, self-directed learning, um, uh, reciprocal relationships between students and teachers, democratic governance. Uh, I mean, those kinds of principles, I think, have largely remained the same. Uh, but I do think that some free schools have fortunately become more diverse diverse and economically uh, uh, responsive to the needs of working parents. Uh, I mean, the, free, the Brooklyn Free School is a um, is a perfect example in that they have sliding scale tuition, and there's a percentage of student of, of students who don't pay anything. So, and I think that's one one of the big critiques of the free schools back in the '60s and '70s was the lack of diversity. They were largely very white, upper or middle to upper middle class people uh, and families who were being who were participating in this movement. Uh, and Kozel is one of the people, Jonathan Kozel was one of the people who slammed the movement for not being accessible to poor black and brown and children, arguably the people who need this kind of education the most. Um, so, yeah, fortunately, I think there is uh, more awareness around the issues of equity and diversity. Um, and I encourage people in the free school movement and as well as in the progressive education movement in general to take hard looks at, at how we can bring more equity into our schools and reach the most vulnerable and disadvantaged children in our society. Um, because, as I mentioned, these are the people who are in the most regimented, disciplined schools, the schools where they have no freedom or play and very few resources. They need the democratic free schooling the most. Now, are, are you generally sympathetic to um, all of the school models to some degree w- within uh, alternative education? Are there certain models that you all have reservations about in the same way you do our, our current model for public education? Yeah, I mean, so I've never, full disclaimer, I've never visited a, a Waldorf school, but mm-hmm. um, from what I've uh, read uh, and, and observed and heard talk from people, I do have some uh, reservations and concerns about uh, some of their educational approaches um, and in terms of the kind of spirituality aspect of the school um, to the fact that technology is banned for a certain number of years at the school. So, yeah, I think there are some pedagogical as well as kind of systemic issues with Waldorf schools that I would be interested in looking at further. But again, I've not visited those schools. Uh, this is kind of just my, from my first, uh, from my uh, understanding. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, 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 like, like I mentioned, I think I, I obviously have criticisms of the free school movement and most of my criticisms really do lie within the, the issues around diversity and equity, because uh, sadly, many of these alternative schools are not found in the communities that need them most. Uh, but at the same time, there is, I mean, in New York State, for example, there's a, there's a network of schools called the New York Standard, Performance Standards Consortium, which is a group of public progressive schools that offer portfolio-based assessment, project-based learning, uh, much smaller class sizes, um, and this, this, the students who do attend these schools t- uh, t- uh, tend to be students who are of color, of who are uh, disadvantaged, uh, maybe special ed- education students, or just students who are, have been disengaged from traditional schooling. 
And the outcomes show that they have higher graduation rates, lower dropout rates, uh, and overall a higher student engagement than their comparable uh, traditional public schools. Um, so I think that is one area to be hopeful for. Um, but I think more free schools should be cog- uh, cognizant of the, the landscape that we were living in uh, and more aware of issues around uh, diversity. Um, you, you write extensively around uh, uh, about a school called Brightworks in San Francisco. And uh, when you're interviewing Brightworks founder Gaver Tully, um, he says that, that parents in San Francisco, however much they don't want to send their children to the traditional schools or I guess the public schools in, in that city, um, they're also not necessarily interested in free schools. I was wondering, right. if, yeah, do you agree with his assessment? It's a very interesting point, and I want it's it's something that I uh, I want to explore further because it's actually a topic I'm hoping to write about uh, and spend some time on in the next couple of years. Uh, I mean, so it's a very good, very interesting point he made uh, that parents of color or immigrant parents are not particularly interested in sending their kids to progressive school. Um, so here's here's what I would say is that uh, there has been quite a bit of criticism of progressive education uh, from people uh, from African-American uh, and I think some Hispanic writers. Um, I mean, one of them is in particular is an African-American educator named Lisa Delpit, who's who's basically argued that the progressive education or or she calls liberal education um, cannot deliver the kind of codes of power uh and the skills, the basic skills that are necessary for poor kids of color uh, in order for them to succeed in the global economy, that they need the kind of drill and kill basic skill instruction uh, in order to compete and do well in our world today. Uh, and she's, she basically says that progressive education cannot deliver those skills. It's only for the kids who are within what she calls the culture of power, who have parents who read read to them who have parents who are well-educated and, and, uh, well-resourced. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's quite, uh, I, I, I take issues with that, with that assessment, particularly because the, as I mentioned, this consortium network of progressive public progressive schools, I mean, these are schools that are largely, uh, uh, inclusive of, uh, African-American Latino kids. Their, their populations are, I've large majorities of, of these, of these students and, and they do extremely well in a progressive education environment. Uh, and, and it's also my uh, argument that, um, that the kind of drill and kill basic skill instruction or this kind of rote learning instruction has actually, I mean, it has not been effective for, uh, poor kids and kids of color. Uh, it, it's actually that kind of education is dead, deadening. It's actually the one, one type of education that has led many kids to, drop out and become alienated from school. I, so I don't understand the, the argument that it, it will act, that this, this type of, that, that the same type of, same old type of education is going to be effective and, and, and good for these kids. Uh, but yeah, again, it's an issue I want to look at further. Uh, there, there are schools in communities of color, such as El Centro del Estudiantes in the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia that I spent some time at. Um, so I, I hope to explore this issue in, in the future. Uh, and the other point I want to make is that sometimes I think one of the reasons why parents, poor parents of color might be a little bit hesitant to send their kids to a progressive school is that progressive schools tend to be a little bit more isolated uh, and not as much so uh, have connections to the larger community. And I think that's a flaw that not, not, it's not a general flaw. I think it, it does happen in some communities um, that I think that might uh, lead parents to not want to, be attracted to, to a school like that. Um, you've mentioned this consortium of progressive schools in New York um, and many of those schools being in communities where there are uh, lots of students of color, lots of low income students. How are these schools um, who say that they're, they work for all kinds of students? How do they typically measure their success? Do they use standardized test scores or, or something else? Yeah. So um, the consortium network, um, to give a little background, it was started, I think, two decades ago. Um, and I'm, I'm on a board of an organization called Fairtest with, the, uh, I think, the founder, Ann Cook, the co-founder. Um, and she, she founded the, urban, the school called Urban Academy as part of the consortium network um, in New York City. 
And so the, the, the students in consortium schools, basically in New York State, uh, you have to take a number of regents exams in order to graduate. Uh, this, the consortium school, schools have gotten an exemption from that in that they've only have to give the English regents and instead of the, regents, the other regents exams, they have, the students have to submit a portfolio of, for example, a science experiment, a math paper, a uh, research project, um, a social studies paper, so things like that that uh, that demonstrate their knowledge in in a certain subject. Um, and so they they move they they've gone away from the metrics of standardized tests and towards portfolio based assessment. And they also they I, I believe they they look at issues uh, <coughs> of metrics of student engagement uh, and graduate. Graduation rates, and like I said, they do have higher graduation rates than the comparable traditional public schools. Uh, getting back to, to Brightworks for a moment there. So this is a school in San Francisco where students spend um, the vast majority of their time. They're engaged in uh, long-term projects or they have an opportunity to engage in free play. And uh, I was wondering, you know, if, if some parents are enrolling their children in that school and also sending their kids to after-school tutoring programs or sort of informally instructing their kids at home and in areas where they feel comfortable, like the rote math, for example, or spelling, things like that. Um, so uh, are they providing some traditional aspects of education that they think might be missing at Brightworks? Um, could these kids who are doing well there not just be doing well because they go to an alternative school like this, but they're getting uh, that kind of education at school, um, but they're getting a more traditional school experience um, from their parents at home. Uh, do you sense right. that, that this is common among parents who are sending their children to alternative schools? Right, right. Yeah, that's a very, very important question. Um, and as far as I can tell, at Brightworks, that is not the case. Uh, I do not know. I don't believe parents are uh, giving their kids uh, extra, like, tutoring or uh, specific uh, kind of instruction at home. But obviously, uh, I mean, I think they, the school does provide and successfully has helped kids gain the reading, basic reading and math skills and, and many other areas. Um, and I mean, I, the, the larger issue I think you're kind of alluding to, and I think it's an important one, is around uh, how, whether these kids uh, are doing well at Brightworks and it's, and, or just a progressive school because they're getting uh, – the reading they're getting, they're being read to at home or they have the kind of books right. and resources at home. And, and I think obviously that's going to give them an, a leg up than a kid who has none of that at home. Um, and I mean, this is, this is another kind of goes to another question and, and another topic, which is that uh, I could talk about this a little bit, but like the question is that uh, does school actually matter very much uh, if you are a kid of, uh, of af- who have who has affluent parents like does school really matter that much and and the exactly. research in, in terms of the social science what it shows is that it really doesn't very matter very much because uh in terms of rising levels of income inequality and wealth inequality uh the gap between rich and poor um the fact that uh the the, the decreasing levels of social mobility in this country um it, it really doesn't matter if a rich kid, if you go to a poor school or a, a really a high ranking school, it really doesn't matter because uh, your future, your economic future is really going to be dependent upon the, the income of your parents. Um, uh, I, I think my point really in terms of the education and pedagogical approach to this is that uh, a more progressive education uh, may not necessarily lead to better economic outcomes, but it can lead to human beings who are more curious and, and self-directed and free thinking and, and people who are democratic citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those types of attributes, if we want uh, that to happen in our society, we should, we should be advocating for a more progressive uh, education. But we should not somehow uh, uh, believe that an education, that a more progressive education system is going to make our economic systems more fair and equitable. It's, it's not because it arguably what social scientists have known for decades is that the education system is simply reinforcing and reproducing the existing social order and economic structures. Um, there are, there are obviously many stories of people who do rise out of poverty and decrepit conditions into, uh, into middle class and, and, and upper class life. But those are the exceptions, and the system as we know it today does not produce uh, a widespread 
uh, lifting of all boats. Uh, it does not lead to massive wealth redistribution uh, uh, through the education system. That Those changes are desired through the economic system. Um, so I, I think that we should not, I mean, there's this kind of notion that educate, that the best tool to fight poverty is education. Uh, and in reality, it's not, uh, the, the best tool to fight poverty is, is wealth distribution. It's, it's, uh, it's giving money to poor people. It's giving more resources, uh, to people, to people in those disadvantaged, uh, situations. Um, and so I think education, yes, I'm all in favor of educating our populations, but, it, it should not be the major strategy for how we achieve social and economic uh, justice. So while you think increasing economic mobility is a worthwhile goal, you don't see public schools as the uh, best vehicle for that. You see public schools as a vehicle to um, promote um, free thinking, happy individuals who are more likely to participate in our democratic system. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a very different purpose of education that that actually that that deviates from the original purpose, which uh, back in in the early early um, in the mid eighteen uh, hundreds. Um, so I mean, a lot of people do share this vision and and, and goal for for educations, but it's uh, it's something that I think is increasingly common amongst education thinkers. How do we? I, I think the, the big question is, what are the purposes of of schooling? Is it to warehouse kids? Is it, is it to create a system of social control? Or is it is to, is it to create a system of empowerment and curiosity and self direction? So I, those are very stark contrasts between the two ideologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, if we could stay on that idea for a moment, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your vision for education and public education in general. So, uh, what is, what do you think is the primary purpose of, of becoming educated, and uh, what's the purpose of public education? Yeah. So, um, like I said, I think the primary, I think the primary purpose of a mass education system, uh, is to, is to produce a population of people who are free thinking, curious, uh, decision makers, problem solvers, uh, not just people who can take tests very well, uh, and, and, and passively, uh, uh, passively follow directions and submit to authority. Like it's a very, that's a, it's, it's a very different system. Uh, and I would argue that the primary purposes of the wa- of schools today is as following. Like I mentioned, one of them is the warehousing of children. Um, it, I mean, the, the original purpose was always to get the kids off the streets, out of the factories, and get them into a school building uh, and, and in some place that they could be that can be they could be out of the sight of employers and parents for the day uh, and 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 be under the control of some supervision. Um, and the second purpose I would say is to 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 teach them to fit into our capitalistic and consumer-based economy. Uh, and so the, 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 one of the arguments that has been brought up by kind of radical education thinkers, uh, and even though I'm, I'm, I'm not a Marxist or uh, a socialist, I, I think there are some really legitimate assessments that Marxists and socialists have made about our education system, uh, particularly uh, two people, Samuel Bowles and Herbert Gintis, who wrote the book Schooling in Capitalist America, and they argue, uh, based on a lot of data and research, that the kind of traits that schools prize are directly correlating to the, the traits that employers prize, which are punctuality, obedience, following directions, uh, making sure that you stay on task, um, and am- among other things. Um, so there, there's a very strong uh, correspondence, princ- uh, correspondence principle, as they, as these two. Uh, social scientists say. Um, so I think there's a lot of legitimate, uh, uh, there's a lot of right there. Um, and I think we need to move away from that kind of system of social control. Um, and I think a public education system should be adequately funded. It's an, it should be moved away from the, the property tax model to a system that is based much more equitably um, and uh, adequately funded. Uh, because uh, if you saw, if you've seen in the past, recent, recent weeks in cities, like Detroit and Chicago and, and Philadelphia, the schools are crumbling. The schools are in, in decrepit conditions. Uh, there's no, there's not enough books, paper, uh, toilet paper. Uh, the, the teachers are underpaid. The schools are, have uh, this, uh, there's mold growing in the schools. There, there are rats and, and, and mice running around the, the hallways. I mean, these are not habitable, humane places for learning. Um, and these schools need to be fully renovated and adequately funded 
and they're being abandoned by our by our society today. Um, in in the book, you you do give a lengthy explanation about the origins of our public schools and how they're modeled after a Prussian model of schools from the 1800s. And so some of our listeners may be familiar with the new documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, or Lauren Powell Jobs' call to redesign American high schools, which she had last fall. Um, but and, and these people also draw upon this history um, for their critique. But I think it's safe to say that uh, your policy goals are a greater departure from the model that we have now than theirs are. So I was wondering if you could explain that Prussian school model, um, how it's come to influence our country's schools, and why it's so undesirable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I actually did some research for Most Likely to Succeed, so I'm a big fan of the documentary. Um, and yeah, I, I do also support much of what Lorreen Powell Jobs has been advocating around redesigning schools. So uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uplifting and positive developments uh that have been happening recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, on, on the issue of the Prussian education system, that is very much discussed in most likely to succeed. Um, the Prussian education system is what, what it has directly influenced our, our schools from the beginning. Uh, you had the father of American education, Horace Mann, going to Prussia, uh, visiting schools, observing classrooms, uh, and bringing back his findings to America and showing that if you want to create a compliant population, a population that would, that would submit to authority, not cause trouble, uh, fit into the social order, the Prussian education system is your best bet. Um, and it was not just Horace Mann. There were many other education thinkers who, who visited Prussia. And I believe many of them also did, uh, get their PhDs, uh, over there. So there, there is a lot of influence in that system. Um, and the, the Prussian system, which is, which is essentially a command and control model um, uh, has, yeah, like I said, has directly influenced the American system. Um, and one of the big critics of of the Prussian education system, uh, at least during the time when it was being proposed as the model for American education, was a man named Orestes Bronson, who was basically saying that America cannot uh, resemble despotic Prussia. That uh, if, if in, in this country we look to the government, uh, the government looks to the people for guidance uh, rather than the people looking for the government to, for guidance as they do in Prussia. So the, the, the model is very different and should not be uh, resembled uh, in, a, in our country. Um, so there was, there was quite a bit of backlash to that, the Prussian model. Um, and I, I, I think that the, the model has largely remained, the, uh, largely remained with us since the, the mid 1800s. Uh, Michael Katz, who, Who's, who's, in a late, who's a late historian who recently died, uh, I think, last year, um, had said that by the year 1888, uh, most of the fundamental principles and structures that we see in American education system, in our American education system today, uh, were created by that time. So that's when the system was firmly in place and has largely operated in the same stance uh, ever since. I, I think that one thing that Prussian model or the factory model has going for it is that it's scalable. Right. Um, it's very efficient. It's a very, it's an incredibly exactly. efficient model. And, and it's, it's understandable why industrialists uh, of that era look to that system for guidance and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and just how we can model ourselves after them, uh, because it worked extremely, extremely well, uh, in terms of producing, uh, subservient military, uh, a, a population. So the system did work in its, in its best interest. And it, and it's scalable too. Um, right. So I, I wonder, is there a way for us to like mass produce, um, creative thinking? Like c- can free schools exist, um, successfully if, uh, there are, you know, tens of thousands of them, if everyone's, uh, neighborhood public school is replaced by a, a Sudbury school, like, uh, can that work? Um, could you scale up um, the kind of schooling that you want and, or, and what are the challenges associated with, with that kind of change? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, well, so there, there are, I mean, to get, to give a little context, there are, um, thousands of Montessori schools, thousands of Waldorf schools, thousands of the schools that call themselves progressive. And then you have hundreds of free democratic and Sudbury schools, uh, around the country. So, I mean, it's not a small movement. I think it is quite growing, and large movement, but at the same time, uh, you do have, 
the issue of scale is an important concern. Um, and I, I do think that we, we should, the idea of scale, I think, uh, is very much so wedded to the industrial and McDonald's version, McDonald's version of scale in terms of the industrial mass produced education system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to think of scale in terms of, we have a few common principles uh, in terms of uh, the way we view learning and schooling. And then let that can be the driving force, but then let the communities themselves decide how best to implement and adopt those principles. Um, and I think that should, that's a more grassroots effort. Um, and, and I think that's the only way it can come about. Obviously, I think government can, can play a role and there can be some top-down measures, but at the end of the day, there needs to be a much more bottom-up uh, transformation and grassroots uh, movement to, to, to support these, these ideas and, and, and create a system of, of scale. Um, in the book, when you're talking about uh, the current, uh, what, what's happening right now in education reform, you talk about the significance of President Obama's choice to appoint former superintendent of Chicago Public Schools, Arnie Duncan, as his secretary of education. Um, how might our public schools look different today if the president had instead appointed someone else, um, such as Stanford professor Linda Darling-Hammond? Yeah, it's, it's um, I think. It, the I mean the Obama era in terms of education has been uh, a complete and utter disaster in my opinion, um, and that opinion is shared by uh, most educators I would say. Um, and it I, I, I mean Linda Darl Hammond is is a great thinker. I think she's done a lot of really really good work. Um, but yeah, she her view of education is is, is starkly uh, con- uh, in contrast to the the Duncan Obama vision, which is uh, Arnie Duncan, who was super, who was superintendent or CEO of Chicago Public Schools, uh, somebody who's adopted a more corporate education reform view uh, of school closures, pay for performance, standardized testing, uh, moving, uh, weakening teachers unions, uh, among other things, um, chart, more charter schools. Uh, and that's a very, very different view, I think. Uh, and I think what you have seen is an education system that would have moved away from the, its obsession with test scores and grades and performance, uh, and move towards more of a humanistic uh, uh, education system under somebody like Leonard Darling Hammond. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we'll have to see what happens in the next cycle. But uh, but yeah, I, I very very disappointed in in what's happened over the past uh, eight years. Um, you acknowledge the existence of uh, credentialism or this need to check off a box so that you can pursue your professional goals and the society that we live in. Um, and so while you might not need formal education to learn, at some point you'll likely need it so that you have something to put on your resume. And of course, the, the effect is amplified if you're attending a school that's perceived as being particularly selective. And so uh, my question for you is, if, if you were ultimately responsible for your own education, regardless of where you go to school, and so that college is ultimately about networking and, and signaling to your future employers that you know, you are a smart and ambitious person. Um, why did you decide not to attend an Ivy League institution when, you know, you were someone who's being brought to speak on these campuses and you, you clearly have the credentials to to attend? Um, is there a reason why you're not drawn to one of these institutions for your own education? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I did definitely consider it. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I mean, I, I, I think there is a lot of... Um, a lot of problems with that mode of education that has been docu- well documented in recent years. For example, uh, there was a book that came out last year, I think call, uh, two years ago, called Excellent Sheep, uh, examining some of the problems with uh, elite education and how it's producing people who are timid and 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 um, and passive and obedient and and not very much so critical thinkers. Uh, so I think there are major major problems with that uh, that that system. Uh, but I mean, in terms of the issue of, of credential credentialism, um, I mean, I think for, I hope this, this kind of, this obsession with credentials is weakening. Um, and we are moving towards a system that, that allows people who don't have these credentials to be viewed as intelligent and important, uh, and valuable. Uh, because if we, if, because when we have a system that is based so heavily on credentials, it is a very, uh, unequal system that, that will that will not allow some people to have equal opportunities as others. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with us about uh, 
your your final chapter in the book where you sort of outline your your vision for what schools of the future were. And maybe I shouldn't say schools, but education, right. public education could look like in our country. Could you kind of lay that out for us? What what could we be doing differently? What would that look like practically? Yeah. Um, I mean, in simplest terms, I would say uh, the three major things I'm advocating for are the humanization of schools, the democratization of schools, uh, and the restructuring of them. Uh, those are the kind of the three major components, I would say. Uh, and, and really the idea of visioning the, the city and community as the school itself. So how do, why, why, not, why shouldn't we be able to let children learn, live and learn in the real world and use community centers and makerspaces and libraries, uh, athletic centers, uh, uh, apprenticeships, inter- internships, and other opportunities uh, for them to engage and learn in, uh, as opposed to sitting in a school building um, uh, where they have very little relevance and connection to the real world. Uh, how about we we let them become lifelong learners and 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 work aside adults? Uh, there's a great quote by John Holt who he said that the most proper place for children to be in is in the in the mainstream of adult life. Um, so I, I I do think that it I, I agree with that. I think it's it's something that that, that adults and children should be uh, constantly in in collaboration and in, in, in engagement with, uh, and I think they will learn from each other a lot more uh, if we do so. And so, hopefully, I, I, I'm I'm a big proponent of of expanding the funds for public education and allowing uh, allowing cities and communities to become the incubators of lifelong learning uh, and and collaboration, uh, because those can really transform not only children's lives but our society. At, at, at large. Uh, well, Nikhil, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll just ask you one more question, and that's, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I'm looking, uh, like I, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, I'm, I'm looking at the issue of dropouts and, and progressive education and, and communities of color and progressive education in terms of their effectiveness with disengaged youth. So I'm hoping to uh, examine this in particular at a couple of schools in the next couple of years. That's, that sounds like a great uh, follow-up to this book. Um, Nikhil, I, I want to thank you for being on our show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me and uh, really appreciate your questions. <laughs>